Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to chasing the swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome back for a topic today that is incredibly important to not only myself, but our guest speaker, the dynamic, amazing Jennifer Castex. I'm totally putting 
what you meant. No, M- that was perfect. MSCCCSLP. She is a phenomenal speech language pathologist who has worked in the NICU, in the PICU, in outpatient settings at Tucson Medical Center and at Diamond Children's Medical Center. And she is also an associate clinical professor at the University of Arizona's Department of Speech, Language, and Hearing, where she teaches the peds dysphagia class. She's a fellow partner in crime and joyful volunteer with Feeding Matters and has been on the program planning committee for, can I get an amen, three years? and is a past president of the Arizona Speech-Language Hearing Association and the current government affairs for ARSHA. But all of that to be said, she is possibly one of the kindest humans I've ever met. And when the pandemic broke and the world felt like it was falling apart and I missed my PFD people, I got to Zoom slash FaceTime sip wine with her across the continent and check out her husband and hers. They have a homemade airplane in a garage. My boys thought it was like the coolest thing ever. And so she's here. So Jennifer, hi. Hi. Oh, that was the kindest and most wonderful introduction I think I've ever had. Uh, well, George is, you and George are absolutely perfection together. And I just, like y'all were, he was so patient. Like you guys went through the airplane and showed them that. And it was like the closest to human contact my children had had, aside from me giving them like a front porch haircut for several weeks. <laughs> so like- and how often can you talk with someone who actually is building an airplane in their garage? <laughs> Thankfully, it is flying. It's at the Ryan Airfield, but it was quite a journey. Yes. so <laughs> awesome. Okay, wait. All right. So I got to tell y'all how we met. Several years ago, I got asked to come out and speak at the Arizona Speech Hearing Association annual convention, which if you aren't doing anything next April, so a casual 10 months away, may I suggest that you put it on your calendar because this state convention is phenomenal. Also, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't the director of education for your state a speech language pathologist? And that's like the first time that's happened. Our state superintendent for school instruction is a speech language pathologist. And she's our second speech language pathologist in that role. That is amazing. Found. And yeah. y'all, this is why we lean in and we engage in leadership activities and mentorship. And that's kind of how we're getting to today. But I got to tell you how I met Jennifer. She was helping me set up or her, your lecture was right before my lecture or, or something like this. And we met at the podium at the microphone and you were introducing yourself and you said, you know, and I teach the Pete's dysphagia class and y'all, I have no filter and social anxiety. And without thinking, it blew out of my mouth. I was like, please tell me you do not teach your students to engage in non-speech oral motor exercises and chewing on plastic things as an appropriate treatment protocol because it's not evidence-based. And her mouth fell open and she goes, as a matter of fact, I do not. And I was like, I'm so sorry I said that and I love you. (laughs) So, yay for evidence. That's right. (laughs) Evidence base. And that's what we're going to talk about today for mentoring. How are we preparing our next generation of good evidence based practitioners and clinicians? Yes. Yes. And, folks, when we go this way, let me just preface this whole conversation with even if you have a pediatric dysphagia class in grad school, That is a foundation 
Yes. For going forward. If you didn't have a Pete's dysphagia class in grad school, say you had a couple nights, but you've taken a quote unquote course that certifies you as a pediatric feeding disorder, it does not. Our scope within the world of pediatric feeding and dysphagia goes from the NICU all the way through the LEA, the public school systems, inpatient, acute, cardiac, outpatient, home health. If you've taken one class, you have scratched the surface. So no pun intended, be hungry here. Seek it out. Do what you can. Don't think that you've got one under your belt and it's a one and done. This is a lifelong learning field. Yes. So let's start. (laughs) So it's, it's even how we frame it. So for my syllabus at the very top, I have to have my content and my expected learner outcomes. And I even state, you know, the first sentence, this is a very basic, small introduction. And I think if we even begin framing there, here's your sip but this is just a little bit. And please, please, please continue doing this. Continue going through education. I don't want anyone to think once they have finished a class at the graduate level that they're even prepared for more than starting to look. Yes. Look at that NICU baby. You may not be touching, but let's even talk about that. So right now, the last data that we have is from 2016. And at that point, only 21% of graduate programs actually had either a PEDS dysphagia course or substantial time set aside in the regular dysphagia course. That is terrifying. Yes. So let's unpack that. All right, 21%. So what is happening in those classes? They are a full semester or half a semester. So here, ours is a half a semester taken after a full semester course in dysphagia. Do they get basic anatomic, like anatomy physiology of like the developing embryo in their dysphagia class? Or is that reserved for the peds dysphagia class? We actually try to do it both. Because if we do it once, of course, no one remembers. And so then we're refreshing (laughs) during (laughs) Pete's dysphagia. You know, it's a lot to pack into a class. So in the regular dysphagia class, and I also want to say, you know, right now we're going to talk about prepping speech language pathologists who are going to become uh, feeding and swallowing clinicians. I don't know what's happening in the OT world. I can only speak to speech pathology at this point. But in our situation, you know, we're talking about development and embryology, and then what's happening as we start to see difficulties and evaluating and treating. But let's face it, a half a semester is not even enough. Again, it's just that sip. It's getting those who are interested the understanding that they know that they need to go further for more training. But I wonder, I don't know, I haven't had a chance to talk to other faculty who are part of this 21% who are teaching a dedicated peds dysphagia class you know, what are they doing? How are they phrasing that? I don't know. I think this is important for all of us to start getting together and talking how we are training this next generation. 
Well, a couple of weeks ago, we had the pleasure of having Ed Bice on, and Ed Bice is an adult dysphagia specialist, and he works with IOPI, IOPI, mm-hmm. how to spell it out to remember how to pronounce it, but he teaches a dysphagia class, I think an advanced dysphagia class at University of Maryland, Ed, correct me if I'm wrong, and then also at East Tennessee State University. And he was mentioning some of this in that episode. And he was like, even if we're getting a peds dysphagia class, he's like, some of these peds dysphagia classes are taught by adult clinicians such as myself. And we are ill-equipped. And that's why they rely on peds specialists or peds heavy clinicians to do like in-services in those classes. He's like, because... He's like, I don't treat infants. I've never been in the NICU. I've never done early intervention. I don't know that. But yet we're tasked with teaching that. Wow. There is so much to unpack from that. Yeah. Yeah. But that's scary because this is something that as soon as folks graduate, we're tasked with, hey, you can do this. Okay. So let's think about, we've got different aspects here. So first of all, Let's think about how we're preparing adult learners. Yes. All right. So if we think about how adults learn, I'm not sure if your audience is familiar with Malcolm Knowles and his assumptions of adult learners. I don't know this person. Who is this person? So he is a psychologist who did quite a bit of research on adult learning. So he is the person who first started removing adult learning from pedagogy. So now we're talking about andragogy. I'm not going to say that perfectly. Children learn differently from adults. Okay. Now, as we think about our graduate clinicians as they're learning, we've got to think about how are we going to prepare them not only to learn what we are teaching them, but to think about being lifelong learners. So what do adults need when they learn? Well, they need self-directed activities. They need to be able to bring their experience into what they're learning. They want what they are learning at the moment to help them with their relevant tasks that they are dealing with at the moment. They want to solve problems and they really are relying on internal motivation versus external. And, you know, that ties into a lot of what's going on in behavioral economics. There's a lot of research right now on what incentivizes people to do the right thing, to stay with learning. And behavioral economists are finding that, well, there isn't a lot of external incentivization that is as good as maybe internal. And adults like that internal reason. They want to learn. It's internally driven because this is going to make them a better clinician. Mm -hmm. So as I start my course and as I'm designing activities, I'm trying to consider this. But I think it's so important as we take that brand new grad clinician and they move into their clinical fellowship year. And maybe that year after, maybe that's when they're starting to get that chance to go into the NICU or go into the PICU or follow that person to that home health to start. How are we best setting up that training for that person so they realize, okay, I'm going through this training. That six-hour course is not going to meet all my needs. It's like, what are we doing? How are we setting that up? We also know that adult learners 
like to be involved in the planning of their training and they do better when they are. Here, you know, this next one, this is tough because we are dealing with tiny humans. And I get that from you, Michelle. I love it when you say that. (laughs) And I say it all the time now. And it's because you say it. You know, experience with tiny humans, we have to be so careful. But new learners need to be able to experience that and maybe make a mistake. And where do we draw that line? It's like, oh my goodness, we know we learn from success, but we also learn from mistakes, but we don't want to make a mistake with our tiny human. Where does that balance come? Again, relevancy and problem oriented. So that's kind of as we think about adult learners. So whether we want to think about that adult learner in the classroom, or we think about that adult learner as they're just starting out and they're in the therapy room or they're in the hospital room or they're in the home, you know, how do we set that up? These are the questions that keep me up at night. (laughs) Yes. Likewise. So, yeah. One of my other hats that I actually didn't share with you, but is a fun hat for me, is I am involved with the Tucson Festival of Books. And the Tucson Festival of Books is the third largest book festival in the United States. And we bring in about 300 to 350 authors every year to talk about their books. And I have the great pleasure of bringing in science, medicine, and technology authors. So I program two full days of authors talking about their books on science, medicine, and technology. Well, last year, I was able to bring in, this was virtually, Sanjay Sarma. And Dr. Sarma is the head of open learning at MIT. And he is incredible. So his book is called Grasp, The Science Transforming How We Learn. And I, for those of you listening, I have listed this on my list of of references, so you'll see it. But you can also watch him and his co-author talk with our assistant dean here in the College of Science on the Tucson Festival of Books website. So if you're ever interested to listen to him, he is a fascinating man. Also, it's on sale on Amazon, folks. It is on sale. (laughs) It is on sale. So again, we just talked about Malcolm Knowles and how he's thinking about how adults learn. Okay, now we also have to think about what is actual learning. Like we know we just talked about what adults need to be ready for learning. This is how we get them ready. Okay, but what's the best way to learn? Well, I am going to distill. Of course, I'm not going to get all the nuance and all the wonderfulness that is in this book. So please read it. But if we were to distill how we learn, what they have discovered through research and discussions and trying things and is that, first of all, spaced learning. That's how we learn. So I want to think about that when we are teaching. Okay, let's think about a brand new clinician. Maybe they finished their CF and they have let you know you're their mentor and they want to begin doing feeding therapy. And let's think about how overwhelming it is. And you know you're going to break it down. What they have learned through all their research is the best way to start that training with that new grad clinician is teach them a little bit and then hold off. And maybe in three or four days, you're going to 
teach that little bit again. Spaced learning. You're giving that new clinician something to read and you ask them to read it. And then you ask them to read it again in two days and talk about it with you. And then you review it with them maybe two days later so that there's spacing between the learning. Because then what that does is it brings retrieval. And retrieval is what sets the learning. So it's that idea of thinking about thinking. So spaced learning is is the first one. Then thinking about thinking is the second part or the second area. So you've talked about it, but you're kind of going away. And now maybe two days later, you ask that new clinician about this specific thing and they haven't been thinking about it. Now they've got to retrieve it. Okay, what was that? Okay, that person is going to remember it more. They are going to do a much better job because they thought about it, didn't think about it, had to retrieve it. This is good information for folks that are engaging in external clinical supervision too. Yes, absolutely. This just transcends over to clinical supervision in general, not just mentoring the next generation. Right. Yeah. So then a third thing to think about is that state of curiosity. How ready is that person? All right. You have this brand new grad clinician who has just had a three-hour evaluation with a child and a mother who cried, and now they've got to regroup and they didn't have a chance to have lunch, and now you're going to teach them something? Their state of curiosity is not going to be in its best shape. (laughs) No, their state of emotional regulation is not going to be in its best shape. Yeah, exactly. Just like we wouldn't expect that tiny human after a procedure to then be able to eat. Can we expect that brand new grad clinician to be in the state of curiosity, a ready to learn state after something like that? So let's just make sure they're in that good learning state of curiosity, mind and moment. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing is, so if someone is starting out. It's a new topic, task, idea, sometimes approximating, sometimes trying a little bit, and then diving in to the really deep meat of the matter is better. It's kind of like when we work with kids and let's say you want to teach them a new topic and they're going to do a paragraph about it And you go, well, you know, gosh, the title of our story we're going to read is this. What do you think it's about? So those Mm -hmm. kids are approximating. So we're getting them ready to learn. Well, adults can do that too. It's kind of, you know, you're approximating. So what do you think this is, this task of trying a new texture with this two-year-old? What do you think is going to happen? Okay, now let's really delve in to this. So that is in a very small, not nearly giving it all of the wonderful due it is due. And I highly recommend that book. My husband is going to be like, I can hear Mr. Dawson now. Another book. <laughs> like Every time that we do a recording, we get another really good book recommendation. Of course. And- 
And then I offset it with all of my like joyful novels that just kind of like brain break, right? So yeah, on that note, I highly recommend Miss Peregrine's School for Peculiar Children because I love talking, like seeing all the characters evolved in their superpowers. So like grasp and magic. Yes. Team. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Because, you know, let's let's think about this. What we are doing is hopefully absolutely based in science. Yes. But there's a little bit of magic in feeding. There really there, is. There is that magic in how are we bringing that child or that toddler or that infant into their readiness state so that they can do it. And I always like to go back to... Oh, the wonderful Stanley Greenspan. And I was able to go to one of his conferences on the work that he did with children with autism. And he he would say that it's our job to woo the child to us. And I just love that. That's what we're doing. You know, we are wooing the children to want to eat. We're wooing our students to come and do this with us in the best possible way. We're wooing families to, you can do this family. And, you know, we're adding that little bit of magic. Yes. And this is why we have the DIR floor time model, the child-led model, the follow their lead. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. So recently, I don't know if everyone here is a member of, or everyone listening, we're all here are members of any of the SIG groups. But recently, so in 2019 and 2020, some really good survey information came out. So the first one was with SIG 13, and that was on speech language pathologists' perceptions of their preparation. Hang on one second. Folks, SIG 13 is the special interest group 13. That's for dysphagia. And it it crosses the life continuum. It used to be adult heavy, but it does also include pediatrics as well. Sorry, I just wanted to, in case folks didn't know. And SIG 13 is run through ASHA. So Mm -hmm. it's one of the ASHA special interest groups, but I recommend you join it. Okay, continue. Sorry. (laughs) There is great, great support information in that SIG. Well, they, they started looking at, okay, speech pathologists out in the field. How prepared were you and are you? And they looked at current confidence for providing dysphagia services. Now, I have a feeling most of these SLPs are actually speech-language pathologists who are in the same situation that your previous guest mentioned, adults who then have to help out in peds. Yes. And as we look at current confidence for providing dysphagia services... 40% of the folks strongly disagreed or some actually 40% strongly disagreed and another 25% someone disagreed. They were saying, yeah, I cannot provide pediatric dysphagia services, even though I'm being asked to. I know. And honestly, I'm almost more terrified of the ones that strongly agree and say that they can and yet they've only had a class. I don't know which end of that survey 
makes me more concerned about the actual safety of that child that they're being called to serve. But like, yes. Yes. But of course, we are so grateful that SIG-13 is doing this and finding out. So then they went ahead and looked at, okay, for those of you who are in pediatrics, what's going on? And the folks that did get the PEDS training, two things I wanted to highlight, recent graduates. So so folks who had graduated less than 10 years did not have the breadth of continuing education for those who had graduated greater than 10 years. Now, a way to interpret that is, well, of course, if you've been out longer than 10 years, you have more opportunity for more training. What I wanted to make sure that isn't happening is, as I read this, was this because someone who had been in, who has been practicing for less than 10 years, maybe had something at a graduate level? whether it was half a semester or a full semester course, did they think they didn't need any more training? Yeah. That question was not asked, but that's what I'm wondering. However, overall, for those who are treating in pediatrics, most said that they did not feel equipped with the knowledge and skills required. Only 9% really felt that their academic training helped them. So, you know, it's like it's where do we go from there? Now, unfortunately, we can't change all the curriculums of. There are currently 302 MS programs in the country. I'm sorry, how many? 302. So 270 of those are accredited and 32, the remainder are candidates for accreditation. Okay. So we can't go around changing 302 minus 21% of, of programs that already have it. We can't change that. So I kind of look at this as, okay, how are we helping once they're out the door with that master's degree? And I just, okay, I got to ask one additional, and this is purely theoretical. When will we as a profession move in the direction of the PTD and the OTD and spend that third year hyper-focused on something? You see what I'm saying? I think that is a very important question. I can't answer that. I do counter with that's a big cost. Yes. And no increase in salary. Exactly. But then my other thought is I worry that because our scope is so broad that we can go from focusing on R and fluency to literacy to an adult with a laryngectomy that like... Maybe we should have the option that if you want to do the more medical, just maybe we should add like an extra semester in there because like, but like, I mean, I I see both sides of it, but like, I I don't have the answer. I'm just raising the like, but I have a worry. Well, you know, (laughs) I get it. So just a couple other things, but first I want to say, so let's start at the university level. Yes. I teach at a public university, the University of Arizona. I'm very fortunate that I teach at a top 10 graduate program. I'm very fortunate that I graduated from this program. So I love it here. We are a land-grant institution. That means as a land-grant institution, we are absolutely required to support our community. So that's how we think at the University of Arizona. We are a state 
barely supported school. <laughs> and what I mean by that is <laughs> 30 years ago, the state, and this is across the country, this is not just us, but because I only work at one institution, I can only speak about my institution. But this is happening across the country. What used to be uh, 40, 50, you know, 60% of our budget was from taxes 30 years ago. I don't even know if it's 10% now. I have no idea. So much money has been cut by the legislature to support what we do. So that means that the university really has to look smartly at, you know, what's going on. Our institution is also a Hispanic-serving institution. We have absolutely dedicated our undergraduate work to help first-generation students, Hispanic students, students of color, BIPOC. That is what we do. Love that. That means that professional degrees, there's not as much money to support. There is now an expectation if you attend a graduate program at one of the three institutions here in our state, Northern Arizona University, Arizona State University, or the University of Arizona, you're going to pay for it yourself. So your master's or your AUD. That would be the same as you get a professional science master's as a registered dietitian, it's the same thing. They're expected to pay for that. You know, med school, uh, athletic trainers, all that, those professional degrees, the student has to take on many more of those costs. So now, if you understand that and you want to, and we need to tack on another year, how many people are we keeping away from the profession? That's what I worry about. Yes, when we're in dire needs. Yeah. So Arizona is one of the lowest percentages of speech-language pathologists to general population. So if you're in another state and you're looking for work, come here to Arizona. We need you desperately. (laughs) (laughs) There's a plug. Sorry, got to do it. I was going to say, no, Dad, come in. We need you in South Carolina. (laughs) Okay, so move to Arizona or South Carolina, but we need you. We all did. In fact, our governor realized how much of a need we have. So our licensure is held through the Department of Health Services. If you show that you are a member of ASHA and you are licensed somewhere else, that's all you have to do to get your license here. That's amazing. And people are like, and how much does the license cost there, Jennifer? $100 a year. Are you? That's it? That's it. Oh, hell, I'm moving to Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> so, yep, you show your ASHA number and you show your license somewhere else, pay your 100 bucks, you are good to go. So sorry, I digress. But uh, it's okay. <laughs> totally appropriate. But I, I think it's important we really look at, you know, both sides as we think about mentoring this yeah. next generation. How are we getting this next generation in the door in school? Yes. What's that cost? Okay. So that was the, as you asked your question, that was the first thing I thought of. And then the second part is, all right, I am as associate clinical professor, my job is to get these graduate students through their five semesters because, of course, they do stuff over the summer. All right, they're out the door. So I'm done. I don't do anything with that CF 
as my role as associate clinical professor. But should there be? So that's my question. What are we doing to kind of branch that continuing? You know, everyone goes off and gets a job and then hopefully they have a CF supervisor that is a mentor and a coach. So I have to just, my CF, the woman was very kind, but she literally showed up to sell me Mary Kay and sign off all my documents like every three months. Yeah. And thank the good Lord that they have, Asha has changed the parameters because- I mean, like my real mentors were the hospitalists that I worked with, the nurse practitioner, Kaki Beamer, who like mentored me, like, thank you, Dr. Kaki Beamer, and like those individuals, right? Right. But having, y'all, there's a reason we ask you to be clinical supervisors. There's a reason that we ask you to reach out and volunteer or get employed at a university if you have this as your focus area, because when you make a good personal relationship. And this goes back in my mind to how do you carry your therapeutic presence? How do you hold crucial conversations? How do you read the room and learn your students' learning style as well as their love language? And when you make a bond and then they graduate, you know what? They're going to come back to you and ask you because you're a safe place to learn. You're a safe place to say, I don't know. Because we live in a society where, goodness gracious, Instagram makes it look like everybody's perfect and we all know exactly what to do. And life is grand, right? Where like, meanwhile, behind closed scene, we're like crying in the bathroom. It's a dumpster fire. Yeah. Yes, it is. It's a glorious dumpster fire. Also, I may or may not have had my children on the way to school today. There's like, there's a random dumpster literally down the street from us. It's not attached to any building. And we had a buildup of Amazon boxes. And I was like, guys, quick, we're going to dump them in. And the entire time, Bear was like, mom, this is illegal. I cannot go to jail. I have to go to art club. I was like, this is fine. And then we got in the car and I was like, but was that illegal? So like, Folks, maybe don't put your extra Amazon boxes in the local dumpster. They're like, truth. But like, we're supposed to be their safe place for learning where we, you know, may or may not illegally dump trash, but like, it's fine. It went in the dumpster. Oh my God. I literally did that this morning, Jennifer. But like, but that's why you make a bond because right. supervision doesn't end at the end of a term or when that student graduates. This is a done well. This is a mentorship that turns into a sponsorship such that as you see that young professional bloom into their muchness in their career and they stand on your shoulders, they take the information that you taught it and then they make the profession better that you brag about them in the other room and you say, wow, did you see what our sweet Erin Ford did years ago when she was our student and now she's out there talking about play-based learning for feeding? Sorry, I'm bragging on my Erin there, but like, this is why we do what we do. Okay. So are we giving those students the, I don't know, the training, the permission, the wherewithal to remember to reach out to us afterward? Do they think as soon as they have that degree in hand and they're off and maybe they moved out of state, are we letting them know, please come back to us? 
please email with that question. Are we giving them the skills to develop that new bond with their clinical fellow supervisor? Are we, you know, that's what I wonder. We've really kind of diverged from the whole feeding and swallowing aspect of all of this, but it all ties in. It does. Yeah. And I worry these past two years, if you've had to do much of your training online, have you developed that skill set to realize I need to reach out? Or have you developed that skill set to want to reach out and you're able to reach out? Do you have someone you can reach out to? You know, I I don't know. Okay, so Asha, thankfully, finally, 20 years after PT and OT did this, or at least PT, you now have to take a three-hour supervision training before you yes. start supervising. Of course, it's only one time. I would argue that that should be all the time, but, time. you know, it's yeah. not up to me. <laughs> so we at least are doing that. But... Is that enough? And how are we developing that mutual mentorship and coaching? And, you know, I don't know. How are we coaching? Do people understand the difference, you know, being a mentor versus being a coach and in the trenches? I don't know. I'm asking a lot of questions. It's like I'm talking to my graduate students. If they were here, they would say, darn it, Jennifer, enough with the darn questions. (laughs) Just tell me what to do. Yes. Okay. So actionable items. One, I love, and I have not done it in years because honestly, I just haven't had the bandwidth because of other components that are on my plate, right? And I have small children. Right. Like they're not as small as they used to be, but seven and nine, we're in the throes of running club and soccer and piano and good Lord almighty, they, they want to add boy scouts in and I'm not a camper. So like, I'm not, <laughs> good luck, husband. Mr. Dawson, like, you are on deck. <laughs> you are up. <laughs> he tried to get them to sleep in a tent. He built the tent and Bear looked at him. He goes, dad, there's bugs. Yeah. I'm going inside. <laughs> I was like, yes, I claim that child. <laughs> Oh, God help us. But anywho, there is a really good program called the ASHA Step Mentorship Program. So if you're listening and you love pediatric feeding disorders, you can sign up for free. (laughs) It's giving of your time. So you sign up and then they take your time through ASHA for the Step Mentorship. And then they try to pair you with a graduate student that's interested in the profession that like what it is that you do professionally, which is really cool because if you have the bandwidth and you have the time, then that's a fantastic way to start that process of mentoring the next generation of student or younger clinicians, right? Another great option is actually serving as a clinical supervisor somewhere or volunteering to be a CF supervisor. Yes, yes, yes. I cannot tell you. So one of the roles here we all chip in is finding placements for our students. And you know what? We can't pay. No. We we cannot pay. And we just, it's every semester, we are hopefully pulling at the heartstrings. And we are so lucky here in Tucson that we have so many fabulous men and women willing to step up and train. And we cannot run our graduate program without all of these volunteers. But it is Mm -hmm. hard. Yes. It is tough to do. 
And we are always looking for more volunteers. And I know this is across the country. We're always looking for people who are willing to share their time and talent. Yes. And honestly, I feel like that's how I tithe by volunteering activities. Like that's for me, like that's like where I don't work on Thursdays and Fridays and yet here we are working on Thursdays and Fridays, you know what I mean? But like this is – this is fun. So yes. come join our crazy party and take on a student, take on and be a CF supervisor. Go team. We're not paying you, but yay. <laughs> well, you're setting up that hopefully lifelong friendship. Yes. Interaction. Now, I cannot tell you how much I learned from these students. Oh yes. my gosh. I am learning from them every day. I'm learning to try new things, try it in a different way. They're a lot less fearless than I am. I love that. I'm just talking general every day. I'm not talking feeding and swallowing. But another go-to would be Leadership Academy. Yes. The ASHA Leadership Academy has a lot of materials and supports and videos and activities for if you want to develop your mentorship and coaching skills. Because, of course, we want to develop that when we are working with that student or that CF, or that new feeding, swallowing clinician person who you're going to maybe, you know, share your caseload with. It's not only what we tell them, but it's how we tell them, and how we're retelling them, and how they're telling us, you know, utilizing these ideas from grasp. There's another book, that I really like, but it's really geared toward academic classrooms, but it's still great. I use it all the time in all situations. It's by James Lang and it's called Small Teaching. Small Teaching? Yep. And it's Everyday Lessons from the Science of Learning. And we actually use this throughout the College of Science. Actually, we use it throughout the university. We have faculty learning communities and we are constantly referring back to this book. It is such a good book. It's pretty too. Sorry, it's got a pretty little cover. Yes. Okay. And it's also on sale. Okay. Love this. I'm just, I just keep adding stuff to the Kindle list and I'm like, yup. Sorry, Mr. Dawson. My apologies, Mr. (laughs) Dawson. God bless America. Oh my goodness. So, okay. We've talked about adult learning and principles of adult learning and what adults need to know when or need when they're working on their learning and they're thinking about thinking. You know, we haven't talked about critical thinking. And, you know, sometimes I feel like that's such a, oh, we have to turn everybody into critical thinkers and, oh, just throw them into this situation and and they'll develop critical thinking skills. And just between you and me and the lamppost, I hate that way of thinking about critical thinking. So one of the first reports on critical thinking was the Delphi report. And that was out of the, I think, APA, American Psychology Association. I think it's out from them. And they looked at, okay, what is critical thinking? Like, what are the components? And and it's analysis, evaluation, and inference. And they define critical thinking as a form of directed, problem-focused thinking in which the individual tests ideas or possible solutions for errors or drawbacks. 
Sometimes I feel like when we are working with this new feeding clinician, a student, we think that, well, let's just throw the problem at them and they'll just like, oh, you know, spend 75 hours researching it on Google and then they'll come in with all these ideas. Uh Uh-uh. If they're going to do directed, problem-focused thinking, I really think we need to give them that foundation on which to focus and on which to direct. So I'll just throw it out there to everyone who's listening. You know, when we are training whoever is, is doing your feeding therapy, think about what you're providing them on which to then problem solve. Are we providing that person enough of foundation so that they can say, well, gee, here is this evidence-based practice that my mentor told me about, and here is this practice that my best friend told me about that was in Parents Magazine. Okay, do they come together? Have we given them the skills to think about it? But it's not everything. You know, it's how are we helping them make those directed, you know, discussions to build upon? So Ariel, if you're listening, I am joyfully chucking you under the bus, baby. Ariel was one of my grad students from the spring semester that like Mm -hmm. concluded like the tail end of April. And it was her very first off-campus clinical practicum. And she'd never worked with PFD and or AAC SGD. Like, and that's like... My entire caseload. Okay, um, you know what? Let's PFD. Maybe all oh, the listeners know, maybe not all of them, pediatric feeding disorder. And AAC SGD is augmentative alternative communication speech generating device. So she had a full day of the week. Thank you. Perfect. She had a full day of the week with me where it was children with severe and profound disabilities that required alternate means of nourishment and alternate means of communication. And um, I hate saying severe and profound disability. I'm learning the more appropriate social terms, but like I am a work in progress, so extend grace, folks. But I would give her snippets, read this chapter in food chaining where we talk about pre-chaining skills, right? Like not the whole book, just focus on like these couple of pages, right? And also thank you, Sherry Fraker, excellent work. And then I also would have her ask on Wednesdays when we did rounds. Wednesdays, we would have rounds at our private practice. And it's an OT, Jennifer, you're going to love this. It's an OT-led private practice. The founder is an OT. The team is almost all occupational therapists. There's only one full-time SLP and then myself and two other part-time SLPs. That's it. But it's like OT-led, which I love the IPP here. And I, you know, I told her, I was like, bring up this case. What are your concerns? And ask them. And the first time she was like really hesitant to like ask a question, but isn't that truthful for all new grads? Isn't that true? Well, it's truthful truthful for all of us. (laughs) Yes. Like you don't want to be the one in the back of the room raising your hand. Like, but I don't understand why. I mean, that's literally always been me, but like social awareness, I don't have a filter, but like It was so cool to watch her embrace her comfortableness, comfortability, this is the word I'm looking for, to ask 
the questions. And to me, that's an evolution of critical thinking skills is that first you ask a question, but then you start asking and modifying and tailoring how we're asking the questions. It's like you're peeling away at like, okay, but why could they touch the baby green bean last week, but this week they don't? What happened? What transpired in the last week that we're missing you know, yay, well done, Ariel. Also, folks, she graduates and is eligible for her CF in May 2023. <laughs> Just a little plug. Well, Just and if we if, if we unpack that, so you empowered her. You talked about something, but then this was a little later, so she had to retrieve that information. But she also needed a foundation on which to be able to ask the question. Yes. I hope that we don't miss that part when we are developing critical thinkers. We have to make sure they have enough foundation to be able to ask a question. Where do you even start with your question if you don't know anything? And sometimes I wonder if we kind of miss the boat there. I mean, maybe not. Who knows? Again, this is just me, my little corner. You have an excellent corner there, ma'am. It's an excellent (laughs) corner. (sighs) You know, something else that is fun that just came out, going back to Feeding Matters and all the fun and wonderful stuff that comes out of there, one of the wonderful supporters of Feeding Matters is Julie Barkmeyer Kramer, and she has just come out with her colleague. I'm not sure if this it was a PhD student of hers. I'm, I'm not quite sure, Leanne Smith. So they've come up with a conceptual framework behind the development of a level of confidence tool for MBSs. This is amazing. So how many times for those of us, okay, so I'm just going to throw my age under the bus. I am old enough that when I started doing swallow studies on tiny humans and medium humans and regular sized child humans, there was no course in dysphagia. That didn't come out for two years after. So I was asked to start seeing these kids. So this is the late 80s and children are surviving. Surfactant is now being used. Tucson Medical Center was actually one of the test sites. So now lungs are developed. These babies are surviving, but, you know, we don't know about swallowing. So I worked with the radiologists. And we started developing these protocols of of how we're going to assess swallowing in these babies. But, you know, early on, we could always figure out, hmm, I wonder how confident I am in these results as the child is screaming or (laughs) or as... Because we know children love swallow studies. It's their favorite pastime. (laughs) Actually, babies will drink barium till the cows come home, especially if they have reflux because it's so soothing. But yeah, you know, you hit that 18 month old or, you know, the two year old who I did have a surgeon that I worked closely with who had asked me to do swallow studies on children who had also had reanastomosis completed. So reattachment of their esophagus. And the surgeon knew 
that I would do real food and that I would look all the way down, even though really he was looking for an upper GI, but he would order both and put me, you know, in charge. And there actually was a five-year-old taking a bite of a hot dog because that's what the five-year-old wanted to be able to eat, but, you know, bury him on it. And, um, disgusting, but okay. <laughs> well, berry and mixed in ketchup. It wasn't awful. So, you know, immediately, because little surprise, spits it out, hits the front of the radiologist, and then hits the radiologist's shoes. Okay, that was awesome. That's great. We got bites after that and bites of French fries with barium and ketchup mixed together. I mean, we did all sorts of stuff, but. You know, I all the time. Hmm, how confident are we? Well, you know, we know from mom and we used all of their utensils and their bottles and but we have this. But I think we've all been there. Oh, I don't know how confident. So this looks great. This is hot off the press. It just came in via email Sunday in my email box. So this is great. All ASHA members have access to it. It's out of the latest AG, American Journal of Speech-Language Pathology. So if you are doing swallow studies, take a look at this. Because it would be interested in doing swallow studies. Take take a a look look at at this. this. Absolutely. If you read swallow studies, take a look at this. Because we really want to do a better job in how we are coordinating amongst sites and how we do our work. There's the, you know, MBSIMP for adults, but the PEDS isn't completed yet. All of our graduate students as part of our dysphagia course they all do the student certification in MBSIMP. That's what we have. University of South Carolina has that as well as yeah. um, Francis Marion University here in South Carolina. So I don't know, forgive me, I don't know if the other two programs in our state have that, but that's required because it is, it's best practice. Right. So this is exciting that this is out and maybe we can look at continuity and how we're all naming things. And, and really, I wonder how much of us feel like, oh my gosh, if I am not certain, does that mean I didn't do it perfectly? Rather than I'm not certain because there was movement and I am, you know, listening to three minutes of screaming and then mom started to cry and then, you know, (laughs) all the cascading effects that occur. You know, how do we give ourselves grace? You just asked for grace, Michelle, you know, previously, how do we give ourselves the grace to say, okay, this is not perfect. And here are some reasons why and it is okay. So take all this information feeding therapist and let's use it to the best of our ability. Just on that note, remember, swallow studies are a moment in time. Yes. And so one of the things that I see newer clinicians cling to is that, okay, well, the swallow study said this. Like, yes, but was that an optimal morning? Did that kid have a seizure the night before? Was that child sleep deprived? Did that child, were they constipated and hadn't pooped in a week? And so there's human variables as well as patient variables and just, okay, I have one. (laughs) Folks, we've gone over yet again, but hang with us. So I have one other thought and it's, we also, as on this side of it, as the supervisor, as the mentor, we have to show that we do also do not know it all. Oh, yes. I mean, we both are going to be attending the International Pediatric Feeding Disorders Conference. And you know what? I've been doing this for 30, oh my goodness, 
30, <laughs> 33 years. And I feel like I know nothing. Yeah. When somebody's like, they're like, Michelle, but don't you know? I'm like, hell no. But you know what? I know the person who does know it. So let me connect you to that person. <laughs> but like, exactly. And we're, we're always learning new things and trying new things and, and research. And you know what? We haven't even discussed feeding in the schools. Oh, oh, no, no, no. Okay. <laughs> I promise I will come back there. Give me two seconds and I promise on my life I will come back. But folks, this is why when I have an opportunity to take a class, I love Dr. Brown's does like free 30 minute or one hour classes like every other month or something like that. And they're normally really good speakers, right? And it's a free CEU. So like when that happens and it's on a day that I have a student with me, they're taking the class with me. Like I can't tell you how many students have like, you know, we had a, I would schedule a break and we would sit in the car and watch a class or like run to my house, watch a class and then go see a patient again, you know, or I may or may not have like paid the 25 bucks or the 50 bucks to get like a student into a class that I thought that would be really cool. Also, if they attend it formally, then they get a little printout certificate for student participation and they can add that to their resume. Right. But also invite them to go to ASHA with you. This is the second year, and I've been fortunate enough, Dr. Memory Goza with chair of University of Alabama, and her specialty is tiny, tiny humans, infants, and working with them for acute PFD and some chronic PFD. She's chaired the Pediatric Feeding Disorder inaugural track at ASHA last year, and I was fortunate enough to volunteer with her there. And then she's doing it again this year, and again, I got to volunteer with her this year. But I cannot tell you the amount of man hours that have gone into incorporating this into our national association convention. So come to New Orleans and invite your students. And folks, if you work at a university, like this is a great initial fundraiser opportunity to get there. I mean, bunk, baby. Like we can all sleep in like a room. I mean, maybe not with COVID, but like, you know, we definitely have crammed a ton of humans into hotel rooms so that we can afford to go to these conventions, but like invite them so they can learn alongside you and to April. Cause it'll be 10 months next year. When is, when is 2023 PFD? It'll be the 10th annual international. It, it will be. And probably yeah. I'm, I'm thinking virtual again. Mm -hmm. I can't, mm -hmm. you know, don't quote me on that, but they're successful. You know, I'm, I'm going to say probably only because it is international. We really are working toward getting attendees from all over the world. And we've got 30 or 40 countries that were represented this last April. So yeah, it is very amazing. Even the state association convention, you know, if there is feeding and swallowing going on there. Now, the school's one, Angie Neal, who's the lead SLP with the South Carolina Department of Education, her and I co-authored the PFD for the public schools policy for all of South Carolina. Mm -hmm. And it went live in April 2022. And we shared it with Feeding Matters. So I'm thinking by time this airs that they will have it available for free on their resource materials. Nice. So Take Our Brains, Kristen West, thank you for reviewing it. Dr. Tessa Gonzalez, thank you for reviewing it and editing and take it and make it better, make it yours, put it in your state. And then that's just a joyful plug. Right. This is why we do things. That's make right. it good, make it free, make it better, put it out. Baby. Yep, absolutely. 
because, you know, over 50% of all SLPs work in the schools. Yes. Children, tiny humans and medium-sized tiny humans and larger tiny humans all go to school. <laughs> yes. And the, their dysphagia and PFD follows them. Exactly. It doesn't just miraculously stay outside of school until they're done with school. And then, no, it is with them. So how are we supporting those school SLPs, which SIG 13 did another survey. They were very busy. Survey (laughs) of school-based SLPs. And this to me was really telling. So they asked, what is the number one barrier for you to be able to do this in the schools? And for those who felt very uncomfortable for doing it, they're just not doing it. They said preparation. Yes. The folks who were just mediumly, yeah, I really am not preparation. Otherwise, it was time for the folks who, okay, here we go. Sorry, comfort level. That was the variable. Let's get a little more technical. So for those who are very uncomfortable, the number one reason was preparedness. For those who were somewhat uncomfortable, preparedness. For those who were neutral, preparedness. For those who feel comfortable, time was their biggest problem. But ASHA is supporting this. This is part of IDEA. We have to make sure that school principals, school superintendents understand this. This is a part. So, you know, that's actually, I don't talk a lot about fees in video swallow studies. I mean, I I do, but my colleague who teaches the adult course, Kathleen Casado, who's incredible, you know, they do a a lot of that. So I kind of look at, okay, I've got 20 people sitting here. I know at least 10 of them are going to be in a school setting. What can I do to help them? So I really, you know, I'm, I'm looking at how am I going to prepare that person who's going to do home-based services, clinic-based services, and school services who may not be doing that swallow study, but they've got to read the swallow study and then apply it. And they are not prepared. This survey was done in 2020. It's brand new. Yes. And we're not ready. Yeah, our SLPs are not feeling prepared. So again, how are we, I'm going to go back to, how are we utilizing best adult learning strategies? How are we making sure that we are addressing the way people learn and spaced learning and thinking about thinking? How, you know, how are we giving them those little basic foundational things so then they can think critically about it and ask the question and then giving them a little bit more so they can think critically about it and then ask a question. How are we doing this for our new next generation folks? There we go. (laughs) Okay, folks, we could go on and on and on because this is something that we feel really passionate about. But at the end of the day, we need boots on the ground. Yep. Or heels. I mean, I can't wear high heels, but like that would work too. (laughs) But we need y'all to join us and actually put forth the time and your talents to mentor our future because they're needed in literally every single facet that we work in. Yep. Jennifer, somebody here is going to have a question for you. How do they reach you, honey? Can they can they email you? Absolutely. They can email me at my last name, Castex, C-A-S-T-E, 
ix at arizona.edu. Beautiful. And y'all, may I make the recommendation that if you are a planning person for your respective state convention, I would highly recommend Jennifer as a public speaker. So, okay. (laughs) You're like, oh, Michelle, stop. (laughs) Also, I'm pretty sure her husband could fly her there. So, whoop, whoop. (laughs) So on that note, don't forget to log in to your Apple podcast. Hit us up with five stars. We love it when you give us a good review. As always, Chasing the Swallow Truth Science Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallow following disorders is available out now oh my gosh i can't believe it my book has been out for a year and a month and on amazon and don't forget that it is eligible for 13 and a half hours of asha continuing education and i love it when you leave kind words on amazon for that i am grateful and Y'all, thank you for joining us this amazing dysphagia month. This is a month that is near and dear to all our hearts. So thank you for tuning in and have a happy dysphagia awareness month, everyone. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention.
my financial disclosures. All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye.